0: Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about the business of psychedelics. I'm your host, Greg Kubin. And I'm your co-host, Matias Serebrinski. We're partners at Symed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelic medicine and mental health technologies. Developing a new psychedelic compound is an intriguing proposition. Developing a new psychedelic compound has pros and Cons. On the one hand, there's an opportunity to improve the attributes of psychedelics, so they're safer and more effective in a therapeutic setting. For instance, this could mean making a drug faster acting, or designing a smoother onset of the experience. On the other hand, some would say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Making tweaks to the first generation of psychedelics may be getting ahead of ourselves, since they aren't even FDA-approved yet. This episode shares the story of tactogen, a drug development company making new chemical entities inspired by MDMA. Co-founder Matt Baggett has been fascinated by MDMA and has studied it for 30 years. And while he believes that MDMA can be effective as a therapeutic, he also believes in an MDMA analog that is gentler and safer with the potential to be administered in an at-home setting. SciMed Venture Syndicate made an investment in Tactogen in 2021. So what does it take to design this new chemical entity and ultimately receive FDA approval? Matt shares Tactigen's vision to develop the next blockbuster drug. And now, to the episode. How would you classify MDMA? Is it a psychedelic?
1: You know, Since the 1980s, scientists like David Nichols have argued that MDMA isn't really a classical psychedelic. It's doing something different. So classical psychedelics we think of as stimulating the 5-HT2A receptor and then causing experiences that are often self-transcendent, where you might have experiences of being something greater than yourself that we often label with terms like mystical experience or transcendent experiences. MDMA and related drugs have since the 1960s been recognized as doing something that's more like you're coming into a version of yourself that is less neurotic. It's as if you're able to set aside all of your self-criticisms and judgments and are able to be more honest and think about things that would normally upset you or that you normally avoid. But you can think about them with clarity. And this state, we believe, can accelerate psychotherapy, and particularly in cases where people are extremely avoidant about some kind of trauma, such as in post-traumatic stress disorder. And so this class of compound like MDMA, we call intactogens. Some people call it empathogens. So intactogens means generating touching within, and empathogen, of course, means generating empathy or uh, feelings of connection. And an interesting thing about these compounds is MDMA-like compounds and tactogens are far more pharmacologically complex than psychedelics. With a classical psychedelic, scientists have isolated the receptor and taken essentially 3D pictures of the receptor and how it's shaped when there's a molecule like LSD stimulating it. And because of that, you can essentially do these simulations where you take the 3D shape of the receptor, take out the LSD or the whatever was stimulating it when they took the picture, and try fitting other molecules into that. And you can do this on a computer relatively quickly and screen lots and lots of compounds to see if they're going to be able to stimulate the 5-HT2A receptor. This makes it relatively easy to innovate and find new potential psychedelics. And in some cases, possibly even find things that stimulate that receptor without having the classical psychedelic experience effects. MDMA and antactogens, on the other hand, seem to mostly rely on interacting with monoamine transporters. And so these are proteins that sit on the surface of specialized neurons, and their main job normally is to recycle specific neurotransmitters that have been released so that they can be released again later. And so there's a serotonin transporter, a dopamine transporter, and a norepinephrine transporter that each specialize in recycling those neurotransmitters. And what MDMA and certain other molecules seems to do is go in through those transporters and through complicated chain of events, cause them to work in reverse and release serotonin or dopamine or or norepinephrine. That is a lot more complicated because you've got essentially this complicated piece of protein that's changing its shape in order to grab something and pull it inside the cell. And we don't really have good ability to model this. And so the end result of this is it's a lot more complicated to do some kind of simulation and say, yes, this is going to be MDMA-like or not, much harder than it is with a classical psychedelic. So when I decided to start working on this topic again, you know, the first thing I did is I called up Rick Doblin and said, hey, Rick, I'm thinking about working on this, but it's important to me that whatever project this ends up being isn't something that is harmful or competitive with MAPS and the attempts to get MDMA approved as a medicine. And I think that there is room for a lot of other compounds that could be differentiated from MDMA and could be useful for people for whom MDMA isn't quite appropriate or could be used in different contexts than MDMA. And Rick was like, that's great. You know, even if you were competing, that would be okay too. All that's important to me is ensuring that people have access to these medicines and treatments and experiences. And so the first things I did there was I started compiling all... The data we had, everything we knew about MDMA and related compounds. And of course, people like Sasha Shulgin and Dave Nichols had spent many years trying to come up with other molecules that would have what they considered to be the magic of MDMA and mostly didn't succeed, but they had a lot of near misses, a lot of things that captured some aspects of the experience. And so, putting together a data set of all the related molecules and what we knew about them neurochemically, I started to build formal machine learning models to try to predict MDMA-like effects based on the structures of the compounds. And so you can take a molecule and you can describe it in terms of things like its molecular weight or how lipophilic it is versus lipophobic. And there's so many ways to describe a molecule, you can end up with literally thousands of descriptors for a single molecule. And you can take all those descriptions and try to figure out in a formal quantitative way, which ones are actually meaningful for distinguishing an MDMA-like molecule from one that isn't. So for example, molecular weight might be one that's pretty obviously going to be important. Anything that's way, way big just isn't going to ever get through the blood-brain barrier or isn't going to be able to get through these transporters like the serotonin transporter. But then there's a lot of other characteristics that are a lot less obvious that you can try to learn through machine learning. And so that's what I focused on at first and was able to come up with new molecules that we thought might be MDMA-like. We then went ahead and synthesized them by hiring a contract company in India that had a team of chemists to start making molecules. And then we could run assays on them and see how similar they were to our predictions and just iterate on that process until our predictions got good. And until we had a group of molecules that were good candidates for further exploration. So that's kind of the approach we took.
0: How did you start researching MDMA? And how did that lead to founding Tactogen?
1: So I've been involved in studying MDMA and related molecules for over three decades now. I got started as an undergraduate at University of Chicago when I was working in a lab that mostly developed antidepressants, but also had funding to study the potential problems from using amphetamine-like substances. And when MDMA started becoming popular, this lab was the first lab to study its potential toxicity. And I was really interested in how it worked and how it might be different from classical amphetamines. I continued to work in that lab for two years after I finished my undergraduate studies. And then I moved out to the San Francisco area with the idea that I would continue to work on MDMA-like compounds in some way. So I wrote to two of the researchers in the field that I really looked up to, Dave Nichols and Sasha Shulgin, and asked them for career advice. And I was eventually able to get a job at UC San Francisco in a lab lab. ...that Sasha was affiliated with. So working in that lab, the head chemist was Peyton Jacob III, who was best friends with Sasha Shulgin. When Sasha and Peyton went to a retreat at Esalen and Rick Doblin announced that for the first time since MDMA had been made illegal, they had gotten permission to give MDMA to healthy volunteers... Our lab became really excited by this idea, and in fact, Peyton, while he was still in the baths at Eslin, had started writing a grant application. He brought that back. The head of our lab wrote the grant, polished it, sent it off. And we were able to get funding to give people MDMA in a lab setting. It was the first time the federal government had supported research on healthy volunteers with MDMA administration. And I got to sit in the room and work with the participants. And it really deepened my belief that this was a molecule that had powerful therapeutic value and also that science really had no idea of how to study it. So doing a better job of studying MDMA became a huge Passion of mine. And I've dedicated many years to trying to come up with better measures and better ways of talking about it and better ways of understanding both its value and its possible harms. Because at the same time that I was doing this research, there was this huge explosion in the San Francisco area of this rave scene where there would be massive underground dance events in the warehouses in Oakland or big parties on beaches and in forests where lots and lots of people would be taking MDMA. And some of them, you know, Usually a small percent, but some of them would end up with problems. And so, relatively early in my career, I both saw what MDMA could do in a controlled setting and the limits of science and understanding it. And I also saw out in the real world how people, when they really pushed the effects, pushed the dose, or took redosing in you know less safe contexts, could end up with problems, including hyperthermia or hyponatremia, which means that you don't have enough salt in your blood, which can cause seizures and problems. So. I've been thinking about these topics and following the science for many years. After a few years there, I ended up taking some time off from my career to help Rick Doblin get approval to start their first patient trials with MDMA. Then I went on to get a PhD in neuroscience at UC Berkeley with a lot of my dissertation work focused on trying to understand MDMA and also MDA. We were able to do a study administering that to people for the first time since the 1970s. When I finished my dissertation work at Berkeley, there was not a whole lot of funding for things relating to MDMA or psychedelics more broadly. The one academic group that was giving MDMA to humans at the time was Harriet DeWitt at U Chicago. So I went there and did a postdoc with her and afterwards left and went into industry doing data science and data engineering work and ultimately was recruited to Genentech, which really is the company that started the modern biotech industry and is now part of Hoffman La Roche, one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. And so there I got to see how drug development and innovation happen at scale. And I stayed there for about four years and I left because I could see that there was now starting to be interest in developing MDMA and psychedelics as medicine and that there was this opportunity to get back into this space and start working on ways of both making intactogens safer and also making new molecules that could have fewer of the downsides of existing MDMA-like molecules.
2: Matt, I I want to take a step back and ask you why did you dedicate Your career to MDMA. You mentioned this idea that MDMA—it's a very complex molecule. It's not like a typical amphetamine. It's also more complex than classic psychedelic, you know, 2A agonist. But it just feels like that—that is too rational. And there's more to that. Like if someone puts 30 years to in their career to something, there needs to be something else, like this kernel of belief and passion that stems from more an emotional place, maybe. And so I'm, I'm curious if there's something there to unpack.
1: Sure. I was once at a fundraiser for the website Arrowhead, and I got seated at a table with a software engineer who had made a lot of fundamental contributions to the web. His name was Brian Bellendorf, And Brian went around the table and asked people, what do you think is the most important problem facing humanity? And then after everyone had answered, he said, and why aren't you doing anything about it? And the answer I gave was, I think the most fundamental problem is that we don't realize that the underlying nature of reality and the universe is connection and love. And when he, he said, and why aren't you doing anything about it? I'm like, yeah, I need to get back into studying MDMA in a more full-time manner
2: you mentioned sasha shulgin a few times and maybe to level set the conversation it would be great if you can briefly explain how he is related to mdma
1: so alexander sasha shulgin So Sasha is, of course, the Russian diminutive form of Alexander, was a medicinal chemist who had early success at Dow Chemical making a biodegradable pesticide. And because he had had that success, Dow basically let him do whatever he wanted for many years. And he pretty quickly realized that what he wanted to do was study derivatives of mescaline because he had a mescaline experience that more or less knocked his socks off. He was able to recapture a feeling that he used to have in childhood of being completely openly by reality and what was happening. And it was a feeling that he had lost as an adult. And mescaline allowed him to access it again. And so he started working on modifying the mescaline compound to try and figure out what was it that caused it to be able to unlock these experiences. And if you think about mescaline as having the, you know, as being a, a ring and then a little side, like, Thing that's sticking off with a nitrogen on it and then on the ring there's a bunch of oxygens with more carbons sticking off them. You're basically playing with this structure that has these little like decorators with oxygens on it and so it was only a matter of time be- before he started thinking about well, what if we connect some of those oxygen structures together and made these loops that went back to the main ring and when you do that one of the things that you can come up with is MDA. MDA is really interesting because it's kind of A hybrid of a classic psychedelic, a stimulant, and an MDMA-like intactogen. So he essentially, in his explorations, ended up starting to get molecules that had a little bit of this MDMA characteristic, but he didn't really fully realize it. Ultimately, what happened was other people around him started to explore derivatives of MDMA. MDA was, in the late 60s, a unscheduled compound. You could just legally order it from a drug supply catalog and get a bunch of MDA. And so people were starting to take it, and it was developing a reputation as having this unusual pro-emotional, pro-social effect. And it was being called the love drug. In 1970, the federal government moved to make MDA and a number of other drugs illegal. And as a result, people started thinking about how they could modify MDA to make something that had its characteristics still. And as a result, MDMA started to get invented by multiple groups across the world, but especially in the US. And because Sasha was very social and was kind of a focal point for a lot of this exploration, people started telling Sasha, hey, you should really try this MDMA. And he dutifully wrote down their comments in his lab book, but didn't get around to trying it for a long time. And so it wasn't until the mid-1970s that he actually tried it and pretty quickly decided, hey, there really is something special about this molecule. And he had a friend who had been an underground psychedelic therapist, Leo Zeff, who was close to retirement. And Sasha realized that This was a compound that had broad psychotherapeutic potential, possibly broader than LSD and classical psychedelics. It was much more palatable for people, more predictable in its effects. And so he reached out to Leo and gave him some MDMA and Leo agreed that it had therapeutic value and started using it and decided not to retire and instead to double down on his work. And so the beginning of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy really comes from Sasha having this experience and realizing this could be helpful for people, passing that information on to Leo Zeff, who then started training people and giving people experiences. Probably by the end of the 1980s, there were dozens of therapists that were had seriously incorporated MDMA into their therapeutic practices. So when MDMA became so popular in bars and in various other places that DEA felt like they needed to make it illegal, there was already a lot of knowledge about its therapeutic value, which meant that MAPS had essentially a head start on figuring out how to use it therapeutically and identify a good patient population to show that it could be useful and try and get it made into an approved medicine. But Sasha's a really important person historically, and was also just a delightful person in in real life. He, He was someone that had a very, very playful intellect that often manifested with word games and sort of puns and riddles and mysteries, a lot of them mixing into scientific knowledge. And so that kind of playfulness was embedded into scientific work, too. And he also had a huge fondness for things that, you know, saying outrageous things. He, he told me at one point that he didn't believe in receptors. <laughs> I'm like, like, how am I to take that?
0: So we've talked a, a good amount about MDMA, the potential therapeutic benefit, why you were drawn to it. Can you speak a bit about the shortfalls that you see with MDMA and kind of how that then catalyzed the idea of your lead programs at Tactigen?
1: So I think that MDMA in and of itself is good enough. I think it has enough therapeutic value and enough safety that it should be approved. And I think that once it is approved, it's going to help a lot of people. And also most people who take it outside of a medical context don't have any problems. And most of them find some value in the experience. At this point, approximately 10% of young adults have tried MDMA, and issues with it are vanishingly rare. But most of these people have been young, relatively healthy people. And so the question is, as you try to find ways of helping people who are more sick or older, whether you're going to start encountering some of the limitations of MDMA. And I think you will. So for example, if you look at the first studies ever done on MDMA in controlled settings with healthy volunteers so Franz Vollenweider's work in Switzerland, or Amaji Farré and colleagues work in Barcelona, you'll find that just in the first dozen or so people you give MDMA to, you encounter somebody who has a really dramatic increase in blood pressure. The kind of thing that you're like, whoa, I hope this goes back down because it's, it's a little high. And, you know, for most people... That's not an issue, but it is problematic that we can't really predict who this is going to happen to. And these are healthy people, but if we had people with pre-existing cardiovascular problems, you know, then this is something that you would ideally like to avoid. And in fact, we know that the molecule alpha-ethyltryptamine, which had been briefly used as an antidepressant, but which has significant MDMA-like qualities, doesn't cause any changes in blood pressure. This should give us a lot of confidence that it it will be possible to make a molecule that has MDMA-like therapeutic value with much less of the hypertensive effects. So that side effect is something that is mostly manageable. There's lots of blood pressure drugs. If you were really worried about it, you could give an antihypertensive along with the MDMA. And also it's probably predictable person to person, but it is going to limit the use of MDMA because it's going to mean that you need to do lots of monitoring on at least the first session. There's other limitations of MDMA that we mostly see outside of the medical context, but that are robustly reported in people who are using it on their own or in dance settings or another setting. One of them is that with repeated use, MDMA seems to have diminishing therapeutic effects. This is not something that is reported by everybody, but if you do a reasonable survey of current MDMA users, you'll find that a lot of people report it. So I collected data on 600 people and got about 40% who told me that the MDMA just didn't feel the same as it used to. Losing the magic, as they say. Exactly, yes. Sasha Shulgin called this loss of magic, and it was something that was noticed by this first generation of MDMA researchers, which is significant because these were people that had pure MDMA and were able to take it in known doses. And so I don't think this is something that can be dismissed as a phenomenon of people using illicit pills that may or may not have MDMA in it and may have other things that will alter its effects. This is a phenomenon that has been reported by people that had good access to carefully weighed amounts of the substance. And this worries me because in the world that I would like to see, people should be able to access this type of beneficial healing experience as needed. And maybe that would be a couple times a year, or maybe it would be less often than that. But I don't think we want to rely on compounds that you can use for one or two courses and get benefits from, but then can no longer access. And both because we would like to be able to benefit from these experiences as needed, and also because the fact that these effects are diminishing suggests that there's some kind of brain change happening. Having studied this topic for a while, I think that a lot of this underlying mechanism in the brain is something that's a neuroregulatory response that is because MDMA is stimulating certain signaling pathways. And I think other molecules can be identified that don't stimulate these same pathways as much and that will be much less likely to cause a loss of magic. So that's one of the goals. One of the goals is to identify molecules that have the therapeutic effects of MDMA, but which only minimally cause a loss of magic or ideally cause no loss of magic. There's a third thing that might even be related to the loss of magic where I think MDMA can be improved on. And that's this feeling of emotional vulnerability or or decreased optimism or lowered mood that some people get several days after they take MDMA. And this is another one that hasn't really been seen in clinical trials with patients yet, but it's robustly reported by people out in the real world. If this is something that's a, a regulatory response in the brain, it should be something where we can identify molecules that don't do it as much or don't even do it at all, and then develop those. Do you have a hypothesis for the reason that happens? Well, scientists haven't studied this enough, and so it's not clear that any of our theories are going to turn out to be right. The general theory among people who are knowledgeable about these compounds is usually that MDMA releases a lot of serotonin. And so for some number of days afterwards, you're depleted of serotonin and you need to wait until your brain makes more serotonin before you have normal emotional functioning. And until then you have this vulnerability. That doesn't, fully makes sense in that most doses of MDMA given to animals don't cause a depletion of serotonin and even if you had a mild depletion of given the way serotonin works it's not clear that it would really affect serotonin signaling if you had you know decreased your serotonin by a couple percent and analogous situation is Parkinson's disease. And so with Parkinson's disease, you only really get noticeable symptoms of it when you've depleted a lot of the dopamine. And small dopamine depletions seem to have very subtle effects. So we don't really know the mechanism there. What I would say is that it is likely that serotonin system signaling has been altered, but it's not necessarily because serotonin is depleted. It might be because the transporter has been internalized or or presynaptic receptors have adjusted their sensitivities because they've gotten used to just high amounts of serotonin hitting them and causing Stimulation, but whatever the reason, it does seem like there are molecules out there that have some MDMA-like effects that vary in the severity of the aftereffects they cause. Which is one reason that I think we can figure it out and identify molecules that are going to be gentler in this regard.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've used the word gentler MDMA in how you describe the compounds you're looking to develop. Would you say then that? the gentle is in the experience itself, like it's less intense, or would you say it's gentle in the sense that there are less of the side effects that you're describing here that you're looking to remove?
1: That's a good question. And in some ways it's both. So for many people, the onset of MDMA is stressful and kind of anxiety provoking. People often feel weird before they feel good. And one potential reason for this is that MDMA is so heavily metabolized in the liver when you swallow MDMA, so that at an hour after taking MDMA, the concentrations of the metabolites in your blood are pretty close to, and sometimes even higher than the concentration of MDMA itself. And some of these metabolites are thought to have effects both physiological and also in the brain. And so there is a sense in which MDMA, I don't know how much I want to get into talking smack about MDMA, but it has a quality that it, it is kind of like a stoning, drunken feeling, and at first this kind of weird alteration feeling. And we believe that you can make intactogens where the onset of the experience is smoother and is experienced as less intrusive. Is it
0: possible that the onset and side effects of some of these compounds is baked into the therapeutic value. When you think about ayahuasca, you have a purging quality to it. When you think about the onset of classic psychedelics, there's a bit of a, in that ego dissolving period, there is some fear around it. So is it possible that those parts of the experience have some value, maybe such that they become less habit-forming because they're actually scary and therefore people don't want to experience that on a recurring basis? Of
1: course, every difficult experience, every experience we have provides an opportunity to learn. And so you can find therapeutic value in feeling like you're out of control and learning to be okay with that. It's not clear to me that that is always the most important thing for every person to work on at the beginning of every pharmacotherapy-assisted experience. The question is, when scientists are trying to engineer out aspects of these healing experiences, is there a risk that they're going to engineer out the healing? And absolutely true, like that is a concern. The theory that we at Tactogen are working with is that the emotional experience of feeling more self-accepting and less avoidant and less neurotic is the main therapeutic effect. We believe that as long as we can retain that, we are going to be able to have medicines that help people. But, you know, technically that's a theory. It could be that there's neuroplasticity that the molecule is encouraging in certain parts of the brain and that that's actually the therapeutic effect. And it The emotional stuff is just an epiphenomenon. It's just something that happens that is noticeable, but it's not causal. I don't think that's true, but that's the bet we're making. Matt, you
2: mentioned this idea that with MDMA, the anxiety that may arise as the compound is being metabolized um, can be worked through with a therapist. So what kind of leads me to think is that maybe there's another application of the compounds that you're developing that may not be administered in front of a therapist. And so maybe that's a good segue to just talk about how you envision these being administered and for which indications.
1: Sure, that's a great topic. If you think about all the indications that people have proposed could be helped by intactogen assisted therapy, you would conservatively end up guessing that at least one in four adults could be helped by these compounds. And that's just because things like alcohol use disorder, social anxiety, and PTSD have such high prevalence. So the question is, how can we develop medicines so that we can safely help as many people as possible? But we have not yet had the luxury of examining the role of the psychotherapy there and really put a number on how important the psychotherapy is and whether a different psychotherapy might be even more valuable. So one thing that we would like to do is actually run that kind of study. If we do that, it's possible we'll learn that, yes, the best, most reliable outcomes come from having two therapists in the room with you during the experience. But I don't think that's going to be true. My guess is that you are going to be able to have good, reliable therapeutic outcomes with other types of support. So the... The idea that maybe there's a world where this
2: compound doesn't need to be administered with two therapists in the room, that to me kind of opens possibilities that maybe are not just about the classic or typical uses of MDMA, as I said, alcohol use disorder, PTSD, OCD, different things that are are being studied today. And this could... As like with any new technology, the use cases are not really clear until the technology is there. So I'm curious if we could dream for a second and think about other ways that a compound like this would be used that are completely orthogonal to how we think about MDMA today.
1: Absolutely. I can envision a world in which if people could access these compounds and work with them and learn to use them in ways that were helpful, we would have things like meditation and yoga and journaling and, you know, essentially a lot of the sort of practices that people use for maintaining their health and balance and sanity. And it seems plausible to me that a lot of those could be accelerated by the presence of an intactogen. And again, it's an empirical question, but this is absolutely something that we think about
2: cool that's an interesting thought experiment and and definitely i would say not n- not the way that 99% of kind of the establishment <laughs> in psychedelic medicine is thinking about this compound so so yeah, you go in there and it's always interesting that on one side it's not how these compounds are currently being studied in academia but at the same time to your point of the different ways that people work with medicines that kind of follows how traditionally and in underground settings practitioners and and individuals have been working with medicines where it's not so structured and there's a lot of different ways to slice and dice these practices and and the ways to work with medicines
1: absolutely The model of MDMA therapy that we have right now is kind of like a surgery where you have significant preparation, then you have this really intense experience with experts standing by and helping you through it, and then you have this extended period of recovery. And that is a very Western, often very effective method of helping to maintain people's health and helping them to recover from a problem. But MDMA was famously compared to penicillin for the soul. And there's this other way of thinking about it that's more like an antibiotic where, yes, this can be used in unsafe ways, but also if you have a prescription for it because you have the kind of problem that responds well to this treatment, then potentially you can use it at home. The the vast majority of psychiatric medicine prescriptions that are written are for things that people take at home. And certainly for a lot of them, you benefit a lot more with the combination of psychotherapy. And I think that that's going to be true with MDMA as well. There's a lot of things that you can stumble upon on your own journey of discovery and, and growth can be often accelerated with help from other people. And I think that will be true of intactogens in general. But what I would say is for an anti-anxiety medicine like a benzodiazepine or for a drug for ADHD like vivance or an amphetamine, you know, these are therapeutics that people take at home and are safe enough to take at home. And again, it's probably helpful to have experts helping you to make changes in your life in addition to just taking this pharmacotherapy, but this isn't really a radical idea that there may be CNS and psychiatric medicines that are safe enough to take at home that could nonetheless still be integrated into therapy or other beneficial practices. This is more the norm than the exception. And the idea that intactogens should be more like a surgery, I think is coming from This idea that intactogens are classical psychedelics, where people really do lose awareness of their surroundings at higher doses and become clearly impaired. Whereas, you know, MDMA like compounds exist on a continuum with stimulants. So, like, you know, methamphetamine and three form methylene dioxymethamphetamine are similar, not just in structure, but also in the mechanisms. By which they affect the brain and the person. And you know, stimulants are prescription medicines for ADHD. And MDMA, we shouldn't necessarily assume is going to be that similar to a psilocybin or an LSD in terms of its therapeutic effects. And as we develop new compounds that are in that don't share MDMA's close linkage to MDA in classical psychedelics, we're going to start to find molecules that are much more aligned with ADHD meds than with psychedelics.
0: Hmm. It's almost like the semantics is what is causing this confusion, the fact that it's all being labeled a psychedelic.
1: I think so. And I think this is partly historic accident where the first people to work with MDMA therapeutically were people who had experienced doing LSD psychotherapy. And so a lot of them had essentially trained with or been inspired by Stan Groff's work. And so we have this kind of Groffian model of therapy that's being used for this drug, MDMA, that is a superbly social molecule that often makes you communicative and want to talk with people. And instead we're giving them these, these, you know, these headphones and these sleep masks and telling you, no, like go into this inward experience. And people are like, no, actually I have these insights about my patterns of behavior, and I'd like to tell you about them. And so it just, to me, it seemed like an awkward pairing. And I think as society gains more experience, not just with MDMA, but with other related compounds, we're going to realize that the settings in which they really shine are ones that aren't quite the classical psychedelic psychotherapy setting.
0: Cool. So I want to spend a little time talking about the preclinical development process of creating a new chemical entity. You guys are a biotech company, and I thought it could be interesting to hear a bit about the experience thus far around setting up this company. What, what are the first things that you needed to do? What are the early studies that you've run? And then looking forward, how does that then create the
1: blueprint for running larger scale trials? Yeah, that's a really good question. as, As I said earlier, because of the complexity of how intactogens work, it's not even really clear how to go about developing a new one. You can't just simulate how well it's going to bind to some receptor in the brain and then say, okay, these ones are the best at binding here, so let's try and make them and develop them. Because of that, a key approach that we've taken is we have worked to have cohorts of rats that we have trained to distinguish low-dose MDMA from placebo. And then we can give them a novel molecule and have them tell us if it feels like MDMA. So I would say that this is a key assay that we run, but then we do have to characterize every molecule at 50-something different potential sites of interaction in the brain and the body and look for ones that aren't going to have what we consider off-target effects or worrisome potential effects in the body. And for the molecules that are most promising we would then start to do what are called you know IND enabling studies and so these are all the safety and toxicology studies that you would need to do to be able to show to FDA that your molecule is safe enough to give people and those studies can be done in the inexpensive way or, or they can be done in the expensive fully audited way so the other aspect that we haven't talked about that's super important for this is IP and so early on in any of our chemical explorations we'll also do a search of the patent literature and figure out have these molecules already been explored have they already been proposed as potential medicines for CNS indications or is there a possibility that what we're doing is something new so We have pretty good confidence that if we were able to develop one of these molecules as a medicine, we would have freedom to operate and there wouldn't be other companies with competing claims. And also we have pretty good confidence that what we're doing is innovative enough that we can potentially get patents on them.
0: So then in terms of where you're at then, what will it take to ultimately get to the clinic to get it into humans for phase one?
1: So at this point... We are lucky enough to have a number of molecules that we think are good candidates for human research. And so what we need to do is do the expensive IND-enabling studies and prioritize and pick the first molecule to bring into humans. Now, these IND-enabling studies, all said and done, typically might be roughly a million dollars per molecule. But if we do several of them together we can hopefully have efficiencies and have that be less expensive. And of course, if any of them turn out to have problems, then we would drop them. And so ultimately, we think the spend will be a few million. But having done that, we would then be able to move forward with proposing a first-in-human trial and start to study at first tiny amounts of the molecule in humans and then as each cohort does well with a tiny amount we have a second group or a third group we bring in with slightly higher doses until we're up into the dose range where we think it's going to be psychoactive and therapeutic and hopefully we are able to do that work next year But it's really exciting time right now where we think we have molecules that have potential to help a lot of people that we think are going to be meaningfully differentiated from MDMA. So there'll be molecules that we hope will retain this core therapeutic aspect, but will be significantly different enough that they might be able to reach populations for whom MDMA may not be as appropriate or may be less accessible. So what
2: I'm thinking is that MDMA has been used for many decades now and so we know risk profile of it. And then on the other side you have these molecules that have all this potential but there's a reason why no human has tried it yet. At least you know no human that I'm aware of. No (laughs) non-documented use. And so why is Tactogen being so cautious about first trend in animal models, then doing IND enabling studies and only then going to human trials in these like very, very small doses, right? Like what, is, what are the potential risks that we're working with here?
1: It does seem ridiculous if you are familiar with how Sasha Shulgin developed compounds, and tasted them himself to go through this slow process of establishing the toxicology and pharmacological profile in vitro and doing all this safety work before you do your human trials. But this is the standard contemporary way of doing drug development where you are doing your best to protect participants in your studies from any harms that may happen. And in terms of some of the bad things that have happened, you know, we're all familiar with cases in the underground where opioid users have tried to make a synthetic molecule and ended up with Parkinsonism and inability to move. We know about cases where in the underground, people have tried to synthesize a novel psychedelic, but there was a alpha methyl where they didn't expect it to be. And the molecule is much more potent than they expected. And so it caused extreme vasoconstriction. And to the point of people losing limbs. So these things can happen and do happen. Sasha Shulgin himself required a heart valve surgery that is, you know, essentially the classic effect of taking too many 5HT2B agonists. And so I think it's important for our company and for the industry to use the standard best practices of drug development in order to try and keep people as safe as possible and maximize potential benefits and minimize risks. So
0: Tactigen in November initiated a community stakeholder initiative where you are looking to raise capital from any investor, does not have to be accredited. Can you talk a little bit about the ethos behind that initiative and what you're looking to get out of it?
1: Sure, yeah. So Tactogen is a public benefit corporation, which means that in our official charter, We don't just have the goal of making money for shareholders. We also have the goal of doing some public good. And our goal is to make these sorts of healing experiences safer and more effective and more accessible. And in being a public benefit corporation, Luke and I have talked about the idea of the community as a co-founder. Our idea is that in our work to develop these medicines, we would like to ensure that we leave the broader ecosystem better than we find it, that we're good stewards of the possibility space for the broader community. And so this community stakeholder initiative is based on our view that stakeholders should have an opportunity to become shareholders and become formally involved in what we're doing. We don't think that the future of psychedelic medicine and wellness should be entirely in the hands of accredited investors who have high net worth they're certainly an important part of how we're going to make progress but also people who you know don't have a lot of money because they're patients and they're struggling with their personal situation those people should also have opportunity to be involved in what we're building here and so what we're doing is we are allowing Unaccredited investors to invest as little as $100 into our company at the stage we're at. And so this is unusual because typically, if you're an ordinary person like you or me or like anyone else, the ability to get involved in early stage companies is limited by who you know. And so you might be able to hear of an opportunity of somebody starting a company and they're looking for investors and you might be able to write a check. But for most people, That social network isn't so big that you're going to hear about those opportunities. And so instead, what's going to happen is you'll only be able to invest in companies that have gone public and are being publicly traded. And usually, companies that have gone public have done a lot of their growth and valuation already. And so it's, in some ways, a relatively late point in the game to be investing. So our idea is that anyone who is a stakeholder in this broad community who sees what we're doing and would like to be involved, who wants to support... The work should have opportunity to actually do it and get involved, become a shareholder. Now, this isn't really primarily about raising money. So we hope to raise tens of thousands of dollars through this. But that is a small part of the overall raise that we need to do in order to get a medicine approved. So this initiative we're doing is part of our public benefit philosophy, and it's to allow people to get involved. But we will also be continuing to raise money through more conventional means, and we believe that we'll be able to do that as well. Fantastic. And
2: so if someone is interested in participating in this initiative, where should they go and what is the timeline for this?
1: Sure. So if anyone's interested in learning more about this, they could go to wefunder.com And the initiative is scheduled to remain open through December 22nd of this year. Awesome. Well, congratulations.
2: Greg and I have, since day one, been very interested in how do we expand access to not only these medicines, but people that want to get involved. And so the first iteration of what now is the Simon Ventures Fund is an list syndicate that we did where we allowed accredited investors. So it's not the same as as what you're doing. And and definitely what you're doing is expanding the universe of people that could get involved even more. But the syndicate allows anyone that's an accredited investor to invest in companies in the psychedelic medicine space with $1,000 or more. And so compare that to the minimum ticket size for folks to invest in a company where, you know, even at a pre-seed level, it's never, or like usually not under $10,000. And so we, we actually think that the syndicate is a superpower because it's this community of folks that is supporting a company as they grow and with, you know, very diverse needs. So, so I applaud what you guys are doing as well.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. We've been really glad to have you all as supporters in part because we think the philosophies are really well aligned. You know, the what we can do as individuals is so small compared to what we can do as collectives and as coalitions. Absolutely. So we have a section in the interview
2: that's called the rapid fire. And so we ask questions that maybe someone could spend 10 minutes talking about. But the challenge for all of us is that we kind of like reply in a few words. So Are you ready? Let's do it. Awesome. Well, the first question is, how did you meet Luke, your co-founder?
1: Through Greg. Do you want a longer answer than that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That, Yeah, sure. Let's let's do like two tweets instead of one.
1: (laughs) Okay. In, I think, January or February 2020, I went to an event in New York that was an introduction to psychedelic investing. And I was like, what? What even could psychedelic investment mean? And I went there and there was a bunch of people on stage who were founders of the kind of first wave of psychedelic companies. And I listened to what they had to say. And I said, most of these people have no idea what they're talking about. And I was like, I should definitely do this. I should just form a company. I I would be at least as good as these people. And also in the audience was Greg, and so he was one of the people who was asking good questions, and I'm like, okay, this is someone who actually gets what's going on here. And so I walked over to Greg and chatted with him and, you know, essentially did a follow-up on one of the questions he asked, and so then we stayed in touch. And eventually he reached out to me and said, hey, I know this guy, Luke, who's essentially doing a sort of informational interviews of the space, and I think you guys would really hit it off, and can I introduce you? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And so Greg introduced us, and the rest is history.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Sometimes you never know the power of an introduction. What is the hardest part about running a psychedelic biotech?
1: I'd say the hardest part is living with the uncertainty where you never know if anything you do is going to have the right effects. Like you don't know if the research program is going to work out. And so what you need to do is place lots of small bets with the idea that the more small bets you place, the more likely it is that one or more of them will work out. And so, so far it's been going great. Many Three clinical psychedelic companies went public last year. Why didn't you do it? Okay, so first of all, it's unusual for a biotech company to go public so quickly. And so what we're doing is typical, and what those psychedelic companies did was pretty atypical. And the way I would suggest people think about it is that when you go public, it's an opportunity for early investors to sell and transfer their risk to retail investors. And the question I would ask is, why is it important to do that if you believe in what you're doing? And I think that the companies that really believed in what they were doing and thought that they had something that could change the world, by and large, did not rush to go public.
0: What is your reason for doing a founder equity pledge?
1: So in general, this isn't something we've talked about a lot because my philosophy at least is that it's much better to do something and then talk about why you did it than to talk about why you're going to do something. But in general, I don't really feel like it's that important to amass resources for me personally. You know, I have a pretty comfortable existence. I'm not going to need that much to live out the next couple decades of my life. I'm in my mid-50s. I don't have kids. And so to the extent that tactogen succeeds and is able to you know, accumulate resources, I'd like to ensure that there is some good process For helping those resources to continue to do good in the world. And so Luke and I have talked about setting up a foundation where we donate some of our equity and where that equity is used for good in the world. But importantly, in a way where Luke and I aren't really deciding on what happens. And so, in general, I think that wealth has a corrosive effect. And one of them is on your relationships with other people. But my goal would be that I never get so wealthy that I have to worry about whether people are interacting with me because I'm wealthy or just because we're interacting. And so like, because I'm neurotic in that way, I'd much rather create some other mechanism where if somebody could benefit from some of the the capital that's been accumulated, there's some objective community-based process, not me, whereby that could happen.
0: All right. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for being on the pod today. If you have any final thoughts to share, the mic is yours.
1: First of all, thank you so much for having me on here. You guys are such a delightful pair of people to have a conversation with and thank you for sharing your platform to let me talk to your listeners. And all I would say is that I've had a, an odd career in psychedelic research where I happen to be in a good place at a good time, multiple times throughout my life, and have sometimes had grants and resources to do human MDMA work, but sometimes I've been doing it as a hobby while I worked at some day job. And what I would say is that if this is an area that interests you, there is potential to get involved and do good work that there's lots of organizations now, you know, things like Dance Safe. There are lots of student organizations, both like harm reduction ones like SSDP, but psychedelic societies as well. <laughs> So there's all kinds of places for people to reach out and find community. So I think that in the long run, our success is going to be based on us connecting with each other and finding ways to do things together. And so I would encourage anyone who's inspired by what we've talked about to try and do that. And I'm happy to chat with people as well.
0: This is Business Trip, a podcast about the business of psychedelics. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at business trip fm. And if you're building a company in psychedelics, hit us up. My email is greg at fm. And a special shout out to some of our listeners, including Gar Chan and Cesar Marin, who emailed us with their feedback about the podcast. I'm your host, Greg Kubin, alongside Matthias Sarabrinsky Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.